Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here is your host, Sarah Blackhurst. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen, the Action 22 show that we do every week. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. We have a little bit of a departure from what we've been talking about lately today. We've got Mike Riley with us today. I first got to know Mike because we were part of the same class for the, a Packard Fellowship that they did here in Pueblo for, a, it was a few classes, they did it for a few years. Uh, Packard Foundation, the Hewlett Packard, the man that started Hewlett Packard was from Pueblo. And so part of his foundation was that funds would go to nonprofits in Pueblo. And so they did that for years and years and years. And then a few years ago, they said, how can we be most impactful? And what they decided that they needed to do was to start to have um, nonprofit EDs, CEOs, and so forth, just get another level of training on how to manage boards and how to really have a vision statement and, and all the things that go into to running and to being part of a, a nonprofit ED. So Mike was in that class with me and that was the first time we met. And it was interesting because there's a whole lot of different kinds of people and a whole lot of different kinds of uh, nonprofits that were there. So Mike, just tell us a little bit um, about that. So um, we there's a few, we were talking before that we started uh, recording the show about some of the people that we met. And it's been interesting because some of those same people we've kept contact with um, over the years. But I was really fascinated in the very beginning about your nonprofit. This was a really cool thing that you were doing. So tell us a little bit about you and about the nonprofit, your nonprofit, how the whole thing got started. Okay, great. Um, I was raised in uh, Canyon City down in the Fremont County area. So um, being raised in Canyon, we have a lot of blue collar work down there. And my grandpa ended up having a body shop in Canyon City where we did automotive repair. Um, With that being said, I was about 13 or 14 years old and I kind of started heading down the wrong path, hanging out with older people that were in kind of in the wrong line of business, I guess the best way to put it. And I started kind of going down that road and my grandpa bought me a dirt bike and he basically said, you know, we're going to put this dirt bike in the middle of the shop and if you keep getting in trouble, the dirt bike stays chained to the middle of the shop and if you get it, (laughs) then you can take it out and go ride it, you know, if you're doing good, so. Um, needless to say that turned my life around. I really started going with the right group of people and really changed my life around. So, um, I moved to Pueblo in 2000. I just really liked the town. Uh, One of my friends invited me to move down here with him. So with that, I moved down in 2000, kind of just was trying to fill out what I wanted to do in Pueblo. Um, I went to PCC for my degree in machining technology. So I, I'm a CNC machinist as well. Um, in 2008, the, 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 the financial crisis kind of happened and all the machine shops were kind of struggling to have any employment. So I decided to go back to CSU Pueblo for my degree in uh, social work. So I went for my bachelor's in social work at CSU Pueblo. And while I was there, I developed a race team called Southern Colorado Racing or so-called racing. And it was kind of just a childhood dream is to be a part of a race team and be a part of something like that. So I helped develop that with some of my friends from Pueblo. And we had a lot of really good things happening. We had a really big race team in the motocross circuit in Colorado. Um, We had actually even sponsored a few cars that were racing up the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. So I had accomplished really my goals with that. 
Um, so I started reaching out to youth and helping them out as much as I could. Um, we had a kid that was next door to our building that we were in at that time. And it was just him and his mom and his little sister. And they, he was really struggling um, in school academically, behavior-wise. And I had an extra dirt bike, so I made a deal with him and his mom that I would put a dirt bike underneath him and take him to the races and let him ride it as long as he started getting his grades straight. Um, he ended up turning everything around, ended up uh, finishing county high school on the honor roll, and he actually got some uh, scholarships up north to go to some colleges up there. So wow. it was just really neat to see that motivation, that, that factor, that thing that changed his life. So um, he did end up going to college up north, and he was up there for about two years. And unfortunately, he ended up getting hurt while he was up there, and he ended up getting on painkillers. Oh, well, boy. he ended up taking him out of school because of that, and he moved back to Pueblo. And unfortunately, that was when the opioid crisis was really running rampant in Pueblo. And he ended up falling into a heroin addiction on top of it. So uh, I worked with him as much as I possibly could after he had moved back, but he was just so distant from me. It was really frustrating because this kid was like my little brother when we were working together before. So um, unfortunately, he ended up uh, passing away from an overdose. And that was just... Oh. I was sitting in my in one of my classes for my bachelor's degree, and it really just came to me that I really needed to turn this race team into a nonprofit. And I didn't even know what a 501c3 nonprofit was. I didn't even know how it even worked or anything, but I decided that I wanted to make a positive impact in Pueblo. And I knew that motorsports and racing were something that really kids don't get a lot of exposure to. So I wanted to bring that to Pueblo. Um, I had a friend from, uh, he was the executive director of the Jacobs Center that's located in Fort Collins. And he was talking to me about what some of my ideas were and how I wanted to get used dirt bikes and teach kids how to ride and kind of give them goals to work on. And he told me, he goes, you know, there's already a national program that does that already. And it's, it's ran by Honda. So I was like, well, let me find out more about it. So I actually went up there after I graduated, the week after I graduated with my bachelor's degree. I went up there and spent a week with him just learning more about the NIPM program. And that's the National Youth Project Using Mini Bikes. Um, it's based out of Boston. So it's been around since 1969. And it's got a really neat track record of really helping youth overcome some of their obstacles. But, um, so after I had met with him, he had informed me that I had to have a nonprofit in order to get the program started. So I had started all my work to get the nonprofit established here in Pueblo. Um, we were able to work with uh, Senate Bill 94 and House Bill 1451 in order to get the funding together in order to get the program here. So it was really neat to see a community collaboration just come together within a couple weeks of, hey, there's this dirt bike program, let's bring it to Pueblo. And next thing you know, it was really neat to see local lawyers stepped up and did donations as well. So um, with that being said, we received our dirt bikes in November of 2016. It took us a little while to kind of get the program going, but we started working with our first kids in February of 2017. So the way the NIFM program works is that we set goals for these kids to work on while they're in the program. Uh, it doesn't necessarily buy their time on the dirt bikes. We just want that positive thing for them to work on while they're there. And it's really neat because we have a policy that even if the kids make a mistake that week, they don't get turned away from the program. We still pick them up. We just spend a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time focusing on what they're dealing with. So we were able to bring the NIPM program to Pueblo. It's a really neat program because it does work with a broad range of kids. It works with kids from all the way from gang members to kids that are just having behavioral problems and 
playing video games and stuff like that. So we've seen that make a huge impact on all different types of kids. How many, so since tw uh, 2017, so that's when you first started, February of 2017, how many kids have you served since then? To this day, we've served over 150 kids. Wow. That's amazing. So we work with really small groups. We like to keep our groups under 10. So that way that mentoring aspect is the strong point of the program. And that's really the part that's neat about the program is that it is a dirt bike program and the kids are learning something absolutely amazing that kind of builds their teamwork skills and their individual skills. But then on the backside of it, they also get that mentoring component that's just, I think it's the icing on top of the cake for it. So besides yourself working with, who, who's your team? Talk about your team that's working with these kids. So I have an awesome group of people that have been working with me. Uh, I have a friend from Fremont County that she's been, I've worked with her off and on with the race team for a long time. Her name's Ashley Barnes. She's actually the NIPM program coordinator now, and she's just been by my side through it all. She loves working with at-risk youth, and it just seems like she's, it's a really good fit for her to be around the motorsports park and working with the youth. It just seems like she has that natural ability to connect, especially with the girls we work with. Oh, very good. What, what's the uh, average age of the kids that you're seeing in this program? We work with kids from ages 10 to 18 years old, but I would say our, the majority of the kids are probably 13, 14 years old in that middle range. Is that when you bring them in, is that when you really start to see these <clears throat> lifestyle changes where it's kind of make or break them from that point on? And is that the key moment where you want to get in to this kid's life and help them out and kind of turn them around? Yeah, we just, I mean, we like to meet them wherever they're at, you know, I mean, even if they're having slight behaviors or anything like that, we want to meet them where they're at and then kind of be able to build that, you know, the coping skills and the life skills that they are, they're, they're missing, you know, mm -hmm. and then also trying to fix those communication uh, paths with the parents and with them. So that way we can start fixing everything from the house and from their home. And that, that was my next part of the question was, you know, when you're, you're seeing these kids go through the program. Are you seeing kind of a disconnect with their parents maybe? Um, is it their home life that's really affecting this? And then through the program, you can improve that with them and their parents and their home life. Absolutely. Their home life is where it all starts. I mean, if they, many of the youth we work with have broken homes or single parent homes that we work with. And it's really neat to see the parents come in and they're just kind of at their wits end with the boy or the girl that we're working with. And even they're even the youth is even kind of at their wits end with everything. So it's kind of nice to be able to go, hey, there is hope that we can make it through this. And I mean, we've had parents come to me two weeks into the program and they're like, I don't know what you did. It's like you flipped a switch because now he's doing all of his chores. He's trying to go to school. He's doing his things that he's expected to do. And I think one of the reasons why that works so well is because we hold the kids accountable to what their actions are. And I hold them on a, on a more adult level. You know, we don't talk to my kids or anything like that. We want them to start stepping up into that young adult role and being able to hold them accountable for some of their actions, but also knowing that they're going to make the mistakes they're going to make. But how do we deal with those mistakes and move and learn from them? How do the kids find you? Um, primarily, we get a lot of our referrals through probation and Department of Human Services, but there's here lately we have been getting a lot of just word of mouth of just parents talking to each other and you know, my son's having issues with this and this and that. And next thing you know, we, they come to us and we get them started in the program. We really, one of the neat things about NIPM, uh, the org the national organization requires that we don't turn kids away due to the cost of the program or anything like that. So that really gives me the freedom to be 
you know, creative and thinking out of the box as far as how I can, how I can make it affordable for the families and then also make sure that the kid gets everything that he needs. So that was the next thing I was going to ask you, how, how much does it cost or what, how do you fund? How are you funded? Right now we're primarily grant funded. I mean, we are working on getting some of the contracts back and kind of getting all that going. COVID really hit us hard. Uh, the NIPM program was actually shut down on a national level for almost nine months. And really that was our one and only program we had going. So it was, it was pretty difficult to make it through COVID, but we're really looking forward to being able to get our contracts started back up and then, you know, doing fee for service and some special fundraising events. So when a kid is in your program, how long are, how long is the program for? Like how long do you keep them? The main structure of the NIPM program is anywhere from three to four months, but I'm one of those people that once I make a connection with the youth, I don't want to lose that connection. So many of them have my email, many of them have my cell phone number, and they know that if, you know, if there's something going on, a crisis in their life, and that even if it's three or four years down the road, I'll still be here because, I mean, I want to be that support from however I possibly can. Is there a way for them to continue dirt bike racing after they're out of the program? Yeah, we, it's really neat. So once they finish the NIPM program, we, they can, they turn into, they become certified NIPM riders. So once they do that, we can take them out for trail rides and different activities on the dirt bikes. And then also some alternative activities and, and enjoying the outdoors and everything like that. So you don't turn anybody away ever. How does that work? we I just, I believe that every kid needs a chance. I've never turned down a kid from the program. And to be honest with you, I think we've only had like one or two kids actually leave because of behaviors at the motorsports park or something like that, because we, we know that they're dealing with what they're dealing with. So they're reacting to the situation and for us to be there for them, you know, is the most important. If we turn our back on them and we're just kind of joining the line of people that have done the same. So I do whatever I can to get the kids into the program and let them stay there as long as they possibly want to. When they're done with the program and they're still sticking around, they become certified. Do they serve as sort of unofficial mentors or do they turn around and sort of pay it forward, do you find? That's what's really cool about the NIPM program is they actually, if you're 15 years or older, and we were watching as we're teaching the lessons, if we see some leadership skills starting to emerge, we can actually promote the kids to a junior leader position where they will actually be doing a lot of the one-on-one -on -one peer mentoring with the kids and kind of helping them. And then that's where I see a really big effect with especially our 10 and 11 year olds is when you have the 15 or 16 year old boys working with the younger guys. It's really neat to see that because I think with any youth program, there's always that uncomfortable situation when you have older kids with right. younger kids. Right. But when all of a sudden these older kids are jumping in and helping the kids put their helmets on and their goggles on and things like that, I think that kind of starts really opening these younger guys' eyes up to the fact that, wow, these people are here for me. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. And it gives them a sense of ownership and responsibility. Mm -hmm. It actually really develops that part of it. So you, so you already said COVID has hit you really hard. And then there was a big project you were working on and things kind of fell through. You had to pivot in a really big way. Tell us a little bit about what happened. So one of the big down, one of the holdbacks for the NIPM program for us has always been being able to have alternative activities for the youth when the weather's inclement and we can't have them out on the dirt bikes. Um, my dream has always been able to have a youth center that kind of has a, a shop type component to it to where the kids can learn how to do some vocational skills. Um, we have had a couple buildings that where we tried to do that, but we recently had a, a building up in the Bessemer area that was actually a youth center in the very, it's an inception. So 
we found out more about the building, really studied the history of it, and we ended up finding out that it was vacant. So we contacted the, the nonprofit that owns it and kind of made an agreement with them that we would move in and do all the repairs because this building had been con condemned by the health department. So we went in and we did all the stuff to get it back up to code. Um, we spent about a year there with the understanding uh, that we were going to purchase the building at the end of the year. We even had a purchase agreement on the building. Um, so fast forward to December of this year, we were getting ready to get our loan together and we were doing due diligence on the building and some stuff came up and we just asked our, our landlord, Hey, you know, we have some issues. We're going to need a little bit more time to purchase this building. So he at first told us that was going to be okay. And he could do that. So we ended up, uh, sending him a new purchase agreement and a new lease agreement. And he signed the lease agreement, but he refused to sign the purchase agreement. Um, so with that being said, we're on our way out of that building now. So it's kind of a frustrating situation because we were already had plans and in, in connections with very, like probably about five or six different nonprofits that are smaller that we're going to be using the building as well. So it really took the wind out of our sails to have that happen. And, you know, people make their decisions, but it really sure through us for a loop. Um, but luckily within one or two phone calls and some of the connections that we made through the Packard Fellowship, we were able to secure a new site. So let's talk just for a second about that. Cause that was a, I saw it on Facebook is where I saw it. And I felt really bad. And it was interesting because I had run into you here in the hall um, about a week or two before this. And I was like, Oh, I'd forgotten about that guy. He does such a great nonprofit. And then I saw you. And then a week later, um, I saw that you were having some struggles and I reached out, but you, but one of the people, and he's one of my favorite humans is uh, David Pump from PDI. He's such an over the top, really enthusiastic. Let's fix a problem. Let's do this. He's a great guy, but that's the one you reached out to. Yes. Absolutely. And what's neat is we were actually in communication with Dave from PDI about three months ago. They were one of the nonprofits that was actually going to do an on-site program with their clients on our, in our oh, facility. Great. So it was really neat that Dave had that open mind when I made that phone call to him to say, hey, do you have any open property for us now? Because now the table's kind of turned. Uh, within two or three days, I was over there for a meeting with him and his 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 board and his people and we were looking at spaces. So it's definitely a blessing that he stepped up to help us out and so did PDI. So PDI is Pueblo Diversified Industries and they do some really incredible work with making sure that people with diverse skill sets can have jobs. And it's one of the things that he's done. Uh, and since he's, I think he started not there. I think he started in 17. It may have been the end of 16 into 17 that he started there and he's done some incredible stuff with that organization they have um some workspace where uh they can turn around and do market like they can create it's a creator space mm -hmm. and they can turn around but it would be a really good fit for what you guys are doing and he has a ton of property there i think that he was trying to to utilize more um but that was an, an incredible thing and the reason i wanted to really talk about this is because i think it's very easy to lose hope in a post-COVID world, world for these nonprofit organizations. It's a whole different thing. You have to be willing to pivot. Um, how important was your board in making those decisions? Because that's one of the things I think is sometimes really difficult for an executive director, a CEO of a nonprofit is that board piece where 
you want to do something different and you've got to move, you can't, it's not just you're making the decision. You've got to move the whole board of directors and everybody with you on this pivot. How big of a, a part did they play in this? Um, that's another part of the COVID story that I didn't mention is we actually had a full board of seven people prior to COVID and due to just different life changes and things that happened during COVID, we actually had three of our board members resign from the board just for personal reasons. But we still have our core group of four people that have stuck beside me through thick and thin. So it was, they've always given me the, the kind of the freedom to be able to make the decisions that need to be made with the nonprofit because they know that I always hold the nonprofit in my, in its best interest. You know, I don't, I don't do anything that would ever put it at jeopardy. So them being that support for me and there was just times where it was a phone call like, Hey, Mike, you know why you're doing this? Don't give up. You know, you remember that it's working with youth is the most important part because I like, I don't really mind the executive director position, but I love working with kids. That's my wheelhouse. That's what I love doing. I, I only became the executive director of this company because I had to, you know, mm -hmm. so I love working with the youth and, really kind of my board keeping me grounded and saying, hey, we're going to get through this. We've got the support we need, you know, just keep focused on what the true goal of all this was. So it was really neat. Um, Justin Skurgenic is actually our president of our board of directors, and he's my right hand man. He's been with me since the nonprofit started, and I couldn't, I can't thank him enough for all his support along with our other members that we have on our board. Are you currently searching for more board members to fill those empty positions? Absolutely, yes, okay. we are looking. And, and if somebody is interested in that, um, where would they go to apply for that? Um, they can contact us through our email. It's uh, socalyouthdevelopment at comcast.net, or they can contact me through my cell phone. Uh, we can make that work one way, or one way or another. We're just looking for highly motivated people that want to help the youth in Pueblo and see our community rise up. And I believe that where else do we start than working with the youth? What's uh, three years of doing this? Uh, what's one of the the best success stories? I guess you can say that that you've seen. Like, what's something that really stands out with the kid that you've worked with? There's there's a lot of great stories, and I could go on for hours about some of the ways that things have happened with some of these kids, and just how they went from almost failed adoptions and foster home placements and stuff like that to actually getting their lives turned around and being placed back in the home. But one of the first kids that I worked with, he was one of our very first graduates from the program. He was really heavy into the game life here in Pueblo. He was actually a third generation Duke. And he was on his way to pretty much becoming one of the leaders of the game. And the kid just carried himself with a lot of bravado and everything. And But it was always neat because when I'd meet with him, I saw something different. He didn't have that chip on his shoulder like some of the other kids we had worked with. So when he had came to us and started working with us, it was kind of rough in the beginning because of his home life. And, you know, there was that pressure of why are you going to this positive place when you're supposed to be out in the streets like with everybody else, you know. But it was really neat. He stuck with us through a lot of going back and forth because that was when the program was just getting started. So we were trying to work out all of our, our kinks in the program. But it was really neat because he just stuck with it. And he started making the dedication to that. I want to get off probation. You know, he, it was all step-by-step -step process that we had talked about. Because I was aware of how dangerous it, is, dangerous it is to step out of a game. And especially being his family was part of it. It was even more difficult. So really talking to him and setting up a plan that he was going to still be associated with it. So it didn't put him in jeopardy. But also 
giving him that freedom to start looking for a real life that he could actually pursue. Um, he finished the program and he ended up finishing his pro probation and everything. He stuck around as a TIA or as a junior leader for quite a few years. But um, it was probably about mid, probably mid 2020. I got a phone call from him and he was, he's probably about 21 now. So we were talking and he was like, Hey man, I wanted to ask you if I could take you out to lunch. And I was like, well, you know how this works. I always take you guys out to lunch. You don't take me out to lunch. He's like, well, I have a really good job and I want to take you out to lunch. So we went out to lunch. He informed me that he actually started working for one of the large construction companies here in Pueblo. And it was really neat because we have a connection with uh, Karisburg for construction on a couple different levels. So it was neat to see this, this gentleman stepping up and going into construction. And he was like, I'm digging trenches and I'm kind of starting at the bottom. But I told him, I said, you always got to build your way up. Mm -hmm. And it was really neat because he bought me lunch. We sat there and talked and he actually told me he was getting married and he had a baby on the way. So oh, wow. I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect and the fact that I'm kind of throwing a, a pebble into the middle of a lake and the ripple effect that if you can make that one change with that one kid, then that that's going to spread from them. So the thing with him is that all of his cousins and nephews and nieces and everything are going to see that he actually stepped away from the game. He actually went the positive way. And I believe that that's the kind of lasting change in the legacy that I want to see last through this program and through generations. That makes me just a little bit emotional yeah. for sure. If somebody wants to help you out, how would they do that? Um, they can contact us rather through the um, so-called youth development at Comcast.net. Or our, uh, my cell phone number is 719-671-6188. That's okay. probably the two easiest ways to contact us. And then we can talk to them about what we have going on and what might be a good fit. For them. So when you, as soon as you move in to um, PDI, um, how long will it take for you to start serving youth again? Um, because of the fact that we're kind of behind on the eight ball, we're trying to have kids in there in the next week to two weeks, if at all possible. The good thing about the space that PDI gave us, it's already set up for us. It has computer stations and everything like that. It was actually a, vo a vocational training center for them. So it's, it's just kind of a perfect fit for us to move in there. And then it's really neat that they have an indoor gym and they have a lot of other facilities that kind of still keep us where we can keep the same idea of the youth center that we had in Bessemer, but also cutting down on our overhead and just being able to collaborate with that new nonprofit. That's fantastic. It's a great facility. I want to give a, another shout out to David Pump and PDI and their board and everybody over there that has embraced you guys and said, come over here. We've got space for you. We'll, we'll do that. And I think it's, you know, we, we call the show making action happen, but that's the perfect example of, Let's look around and see what we've got right here that we can work with. And just, yeah, let's do this. It's that attitude that I think makes all the difference. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, when we were going through the uh, Packard Fellowship training, Mara Zangora, or the lady that was running, was really big on, you know, us collaborating and working together yeah. within the Packard Foundation. So that was neat. Yeah, no, she, it was, it was a great experience and look at the dividends. So uh, a mm -hmm. shout out to Mara as well. Absolutely. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening. Uh, we've got some follow-up from a previous guest that we're going to talk about. We're really excited to share with everybody. We've got a whole lot of, of course, the legislative session, session. We're going to talk about what's going on there and the Energy Summit that we have coming up right after these messages.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. Uh, we just finished up with Mike Riley. I such a nice guy, such a great program he's running. Yeah, and you know, working with kids around that age, like they kind of mentioned that that's kind of the spot where you have to jump in and make a change or to show the kid how to make a change before it all goes downhill. And you can always come back, but at that age, it's so important to have an organization like that or a person or a mentor, anybody that can kind of jump in and say, you know, let's be more positive and this won't turn out well if not. Yeah. <laughs> and we see so many of those kids in, in Pueblo that he just did this. He's sitting in class. He loved to do this. He started starting with his grandpa. The whole thing is just such a great story. Yeah. I loved it so much. Okay. So we have another sort of follow-up that was the same thing. Yeah. Um, so if you remember back a uh, month ago or so, we had Nicholas DeSalvo on. He was the young high schooler that ran for the Pueblo West Metro District Board, I believe. Yes. Um, anyway, he has since tried to put together a group at a school, and he, and he actually did, at, at Pueblo West High School. And what it is, it's 
basically a, a peer kind of almost like a therapy session with your peers at the high school. And, and from what he told me, they have a room, they have a space, the school completely endorses it. Um, they are setting up an online donation and they need a little bit of money. Not much. He came to us, you know, we're going to throw him some money. Yes, to, uh, for sure. Buy snacks and drinks. And basically it's just a, a spot in their school where kids, if they're feeling overwhelmed, uh, going back to school, staying home, going back, can become overwhelming for high schoolers right now. So it's a, it's a spot where they can go and relax, talk to their peers, just kind of work through it and just take a step back for a minute. Um it is called Strive, S-T-R-I-V-E, and they are taking donations right now, currently just via mail. If you send your check to Strive, attention, Mary Johnston, Justin, I believe it is. We'll, we'll have this information uh, listed on our website. It's the Pueblo West Athletic and Activities. Uh, you can send a donation there, but as I said earlier, they will have something online to take donations through Facebook and I, you know, it can't hurt. Throw them twenty dollars. Throw them five dollars. Yeah. Anything helps. And it's just a good positive story. What he's doing and trying to make a difference, helping his fellow students out. Well, and I love as he was sitting here, he's talking about everything he was trying to do and having to be the student body president in a new world. All of those things. It was. I'm just delighted beyond measure that he took that and turned around. And was like, yeah, I can totally do this. Of course, he's going to say, yeah, I can totally do this. And he went out and actually did it. Um, and I think it's a good model to let, right, especially right now, to let these student government kids who are trying to make an impact and a difference be the ones to lead the way on, mm-hmm. on this kind of a, a project. And that let's just give them what they need to do that. And then we can just sort of step back and marvel at what they accomplished. Um, and because honestly, nobody really wants to talk to people who are really outside their peer group. And it just yeah. gives them a safe space. Yeah, I love it. I, I hate the term safe space, but that's what it is. I know. It's a safe I know. Space. It's, it's and, a, and it's, I, I can imagine going through high school right now. You know, I have kids in every grade school, middle school and high school. And it's so up and down. It's like, oh, I'm going to school two days this week. I'm going to school four days this week. I'm not going to school today. I am going to school today. And especially high school. That's kind of intimidating like that messes with you yeah and, and I, I mean I see it at home and I can't imagine what these kids are going through with that and just some of the pressures and stress of it well especially when you're trying it's a time of your life where you're trying to figure out where you fit you know who you are and yeah. it's so associated with the sport or the extracurricular activity that you do and yeah. those are so up in the air right now it's it's an awful awful time um, so a big shout out to, to Nicholas. Yeah. And, and just to show how much of an impact he's making on the community, just being Nicholas DeSalvo. Uh, I listened to Senator Garcia and Representative Escar's town hall the other night, and they had people writing questions and ask questions. And of course, Nicholas DeSalvo was right there asking questions with them. <laughs> and and uh, I, I liked that when I heard his name pop up, I'm like, oh, wow. So he really does care and he's paying attention. He's doing good work. And let's make it the biggest fuss we can over him so that we can say this is this is what this should look like. And um, yeah, he's he's so great. We we loved him. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode uh, with him yet, basically, he ran for uh, the Metro, the Polis Metro District um, Board of Directors, which for our area is about this. It would be 
equivalent to running for city council. Yeah. 17 years old. 17 years old. Um, found out that you could run. You just had to register to vote. And you could actually, in Colorado, you register to vote when you turn 16, even though you can't vote until you're 18. And that was it. He checked everything out. And yep, he ran. And he was ran. Able to. Yeah. And, and he did it completely organically. Did not have a... Um, did not have a, a campaign coordinator, did not fundraise, just decided that's what he's going to do. And he w- lost by just a few hundred yeah, votes. He did, he it did was, well. it yeah, was so it was great. great. It's one of the feel good political stories of 2020. Um, so we have had so, there's so much going on right now for the Action 22 area and mm-hmm. for the state of Colorado. What, what have your phone calls been like this week? Well, um, a lot. I think people still think I work for the congressman, so I'm getting those phone calls still <laughs> <laughs> yelling at me about legislation. I'm like, I don't do this anymore. Um, so I'm getting those, but on a state level, like I've said before, you know, it's just like the shotgun approach. There's so many bills coming down, so much that's relevant, um, impacts the area. And I mean, the talk of everybody right now, at least that I've been talking to, is um, transportation mm-hmm. and how maybe ta- the tax structure and revenue structure of transportation monies is going to change and impact the areas. And the other big one that is on everybody's mind right now is energy. Energy. That's, energy. I, I think energy. that's the biggest one. And, and there's a few other smaller ones, but those are the two that I hear about the most. So I'll say on the energy side, my brain feels a little bit broken. Like, it's just my brains are sort of coming out my ears or something right now there, because there's a whole lot. Uh, so I got, a, I got a call from Gil Romero this morning. He is a lobbyist. He has a couple of energy uh, clients. He's a Pueblo guy. Uh, he lives mostly, I mean, he's mostly in Denver. He's got a place here. He's got a place in Denver. So he's back and forth a lot. But he called me this morning and he said, the talk of the town right now is this energy summit you're putting on. Yes. <laughs> Which is why we're having the energy summit right now. Yes. Because we knew this was coming. Everybody knew this was coming for good and bad. And so we needed to put the summit together because we really need to hear how this is going to impact and you know, what's going to change and what's going to happen. So we, uh, I've, I've been meeting with all the Action 22 members who are energy producers or are operate in the energy arena. And I, like I said, my brain feels a little bit broken. I don't know what's going to be the most impactful thing to talk about because there's literally so much. Mm-hmm. But um, top of mind are um, terms that they're brand new terms. That's one of the things that's mm-hmm. difficult. So we, the discussion we had yesterday is uh, beneficial electrification. So we're going to be talking about beneficial electrification. Part of the problem is what exactly is beneficial electrification? But there's this, you know, there's these terms that are assigned to ideas or plans or any of those um, really great concepts that we're talking about. Um, and then What's the impact of that? How does, and then we've developed these three questions to try to help me and you analyze 
what actually the impact of whatever legislation is being introduced would have. And it starts with, and we really got these questions, these root questions from those energy people, the energy professionals, I'll call them. Um, but it's, how does this benefit the consumer? How does this help our economy? How does this provide for infrastructure? How does this, and is there is there anybody that's hurt or if they are, to what degree? Well, I think the question that I would like to ask, and I think the most important question of it is, as a consumer of energy, is my electric bill going to go up? Is my gas bill going to go up? And how much? As if I was a small business owner, I would be asking the same thing. Is this going to increase my costs? And by how much? It, and that's what we need to an answer for. Like and, when it comes down to it, like that's, but we need to like look at all this legislation, sit at the table and be like, I get it. This affects this company in one way or whatever, the energy people this way, that way, the other thing. But the important question is just your average Joe, is my bill going to go up and how much? But I think the problem that we're looking at right now, or maybe the angst that goes along with this is that I think some of the, the proposals, some of the ideas that are being put forward are very much about, this is an environmental issue. Yes, it is. And it's an environmental issue. So how do you make those two things match up? Again, I think right now that um, everybody is concerned about the environment. Uh, you know, we're not saying the average person isn't going to say like, you know, strip mine the site of Pueblo so I have cheaper energy. That's not right. the thought process. Everybody's concerned. But again, and I've said it repeatedly over the past year and on the show and everywhere, it's like, with COVID, you have people that are unemployed or underemployed. You don't have a lot of money. You know, you have people right now that are living day to day on how much money they have, whether, and these are people that were servers, you know, the restaurants haven't been open, bartenders, um, anybody that's, you know, middle of the road or even lower income, it's how is this going to impact them? Like, how much is this going to cost them? And if we don't, I, and again, I think that Senator Bennett, when he was on the show, really said it, is if we don't put that into the consideration on environmental and energy legislation, mm -hmm. it's not going to be successful. If yep. you don't think, how is this affecting consumers? There's no way that that is going to mm -hmm. be, because then when the pendulum swings back the other way, they're just going to take everything, all the work apart. We've got to find that middle ground on yeah. that. Yeah, and you know, I'm all for taking care of the environment and, you know, transitioning to a, uh, you know, more of a renewable energy infrastructure. Um, but again, like, that's all good. And there's some people that believe, I think, that we should just do this regardless of the consequences because we have to do it. And that's the wrong way to approach this. You know, I, I um, yeah, I've talked to some people that's like, you know, I will make everybody have a blackout if I had my choice and not have energy and higher costing energy or higher costing gas, if it saves, you know, a polar bear or something. And I'm not yeah. saying that's a bad, that, that that's a noble cause to fight for. But again, we're talking about people's lives and right now people don't have a lot. Well, they don't have a lot and they don't know what the future is going to hold yep. and they don't know. Um, well, it, it also creates uncertainty as yes. we're having these discussions about how this impacts the region. There's still that uncertainty because nobody has seen or knows what's actually going to happen. And again, these are bills that are being introduced 
and there's still more that are going to be introduced. And again, it, it causes that uncertainty and, and that's scary for a lot of people. So they are going to freak out. I mean, I'm freaking out, but. Well, no, but I, I don't think it's a, and especially with you, it's not an unfounded worry. It's not something you're just sitting around and making up things to be worried about. It's genuinely, if we were to do this today, um, this is what it's going to, how this is going to impact us. Yeah. If, if this is, and, and it's literally, if, if we don't do that, there's going to be people who literally will not be able to afford to heat their homes in the winter or the decisions that they're going to make. But if we take the time to let all of this catch up with, there's some great opportunities here too, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. So if we give that, that technology an opportunity to catch up, if we say what we're going to do is we're going to invest in A, B, C, D, so that when we do this, it will actually expand the economy. It'll create jobs. It will keep everybody able to heat their homes or heat the water or whatever it is yeah. that they're trying to do. Which you you have to hear that too. And that has to be said because going away from just the, the average person and their energy costs, we're seeing a huge push specifically here in Southern Colorado and Pueblo and the entire region. In fact, we are... Being a, we're a huge part of that push to bring in business, to bring in more um, industry, to bring in more companies, and you know, they have to look at it. If if a company is looking to relocate or a manufacturing plant or anything like that, or business, mm-hmm. they're going to look at that whole thing. They're going to be okay. So if I move to Colorado, um, what are my operating costs? And with manufacturing, um, energy bills are insanely high. You're talking, yes. you know, millions. Like, you know, one percent of an increase in say electrical power that can cost $20 million a year. So if you have that uncertainty where like it may go up, they don't know, we're still trying to figure it out. And right now as all these companies are kind of looking to relocate, looking to find somewhere cheaper to operate, they can look at our area and say, you know, eh, I know in Wyoming, if we go there, I know what our energy costs are going to be in 10 years. If we go to the San Luis Valley or Pueblo or somewhere in Colorado, it's like, it does look good and it is cheaper, but we don't know what's going to happen two years from now for the energy cost. So it might be safer just to go somewhere else at this point. And that's why you can't have that uncertainty when you talk about this, you have to have a clearly defined plan going forward and how that's going to impact everybody. But that's the tightrope, right? It's nobody can actually predict the future. Mm -hmm. Nobody predicted this. I mean, there was people that predicted you know, that we were going to have a pandemic, but nobody predicted it was going to be like this. Um, yeah. And so that's the tightrope where you put put the structure, the infrastructure into place, but also give there enough leeway to make sure it works. And a, a great example is storage, right? Battery. Mm-hmm. How are they going to attack storage? How is, and they, they don't know. So now everybody's you know, there's a lot of movement to try to lock in some of those decision-making processes mm-hmm. when maybe that's not the right thing to do right this minute uh, and, and consider that. But that uncertainty that's being bred is wanting people to lock in some decisions that could be very fluid mm-hmm. in the next six months to three years. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things. Speaking of fluidity, we had a really great discussion about redistricting, and we've been talking about it for a little bit, Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we had a really uh, great conversation with redistricting and what that's going to look like. So, so far, there's a commission um, being put together, and then they're going to start making some decisions here pretty quickly um, on that. So, we looked at maps yesterday and some ideas. Um, I thought it was interesting. It was interesting to watch you sort of process this in your brain because you have a very um, 30,000 foot view of this. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one map that we did see, and we're going to have the people on the show, I think, uh, yeah, in two weeks, yeah, a couple three of weeks, weeks, they're yeah. going to come in and talk more about it. And we'll have a better idea what the commission is going to look like. I think right now they have six already selected, but there's going to be more. Um, from the maps we were looking at, you know, the, the interesting one was rural versus metro. So it's like 78% of the state of Colorado is considered rural right now. And the, the most interesting map and probably what I believe we're going to see with the redistricting is two completely rural districts. So you basically have Eastern Colorado and Western Colorado. Right now, the, the third congressional district, you know, goes all the way down the West Slope and then over to Pueblo, uh, a little bit south, covers the valley. But the, the map that I saw, it would basically split that in half. So you would have basically... Western Colorado on the West Slope would be one congressional mm -hmm. district. And then the east side of the state, including Pueblo, the valley, everything south, and then all the way up north on the eastern side would be its own district. So you would take, um, you know, Representative Bobert's district now would be turned into all the Western Slope. And then Representative Buck's district would be basically all of the eastern rural plains of Colorado. Um, and then the other one that the estimate I saw was that uh, El Paso County would be its own congressional district. So right now they have, I think El Paso, Fremont, um, they have a few, I, I forget all of them off the top of my head, but it would just be El Paso County would be its own congressional district. But then all the other ones, so we're going to gain another seat. So we'll have eight total. So you have these three, two rural, basically Colorado Springs. And then everything else would just be around Denver and you would see, you know, five congressional districts in the small, tiny little area of the Denver area. So for those of you who don't understand this whole redistricting thing, um, let me back up for just a second. Uh, when they do the census mm -hmm. every 10 years, they look at the numbers and then they base the um, congressional district, the congressional voting districts on those numbers. Yes. And so then this committee, they, they pa we passed Y and Z uh, a couple of years ago, and it was basically to stop gerrymandering. So explain gerrymandering for a second. You make a, a voting district, whether it's congressional or city council, to fit a certain political view. So I've seen districts, uh, you know, in Chicago that were, that are the state districts where you'll have you know, one street and then it goes around here and there's like a box and then another street that goes down here. So you can, they'll, they gerrymander districts and areas that would be like pick and choose pieces of a town. Um, so what this does, they, it, it's on paper, it's a fair commission. They're looking at it. First off, it has to go off by population. There's no way around that. Right. Um, you have to go off the census data, each congressional district and the state districts, everything has to be population-based. Um, and then you have this commission come in and they try to draw the districts to be competitive and fair. So you don't want to draw a district that weighs 
too heavy on one side versus the other, which is going to be impossible in Denver, I, I think. I, it's going to be interesting how they split that up and justify it. But for instance, you know, the the third congressional district, and I'll go back to that, you know, we we were, we are a third Republican, a third Democrat, a third unaffiliated. So as far as a fair district goes, again, on paper, it's fair. It's a third, a third, a third. Pueblo's like that too, you know, Pueblo um, has always leaned to the Democrat and uh, the left side, so they say, but as we've seen in recent elections, um, they they're voting for Republicans versus Democrats when it comes to presidential stuff or Senate and right. House stuff. But Pueblo is actually pretty fair too. I think um, it's just a different way of thinking here. So when they when they redistrict this, they really want to look at what's fair, what represents everybody uh, across the board politically. Well, and the unaffiliated um, have an equal uh, seat yes, on this commission. That's for really the first time they the do, first time. And, and that goes back to the um, legislation that passed that allows unaffiliated people to vote in a primary election because up until recently it was if there's a primary you can only vote in the republican primary if it's a you know democrat you can only vote in the democrat primary which you saw in places like pueblo people would change their parties to vote in primaries because we would only have democrats run for local office so then everybody registered as democrat which which is kind of like gaming the system a little bit when yeah. you look at it because they'll say oh look you have all these registered r's or registered d's in there yeah. but in reality they registered to vote in primaries um now if you're unaffiliated you could pick one or the other so if you're an unaffiliated voter you get two ballots you can either vote republican or democrat in the primary it gives a tremendous amount of power yes like you said for the first time to unaffiliated voters so we're going to be talking a lot more about this as, as we go. I think you and I know what we like the map to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have lots of conversations. We're going to be helping these guys have conversations. But um, what we just really want in the end is it for to be it to be fair um, based on the population yeah. and not based on let's take a little piece out of here and let's take a little piece out of here. And that way we have a, a, a Republican or a Democrat guaranteed on that i I think it also has to be fair to the people that live in the district you know um if pueblo was in or a better example would be like um swatch swatch and call el paso county shouldn't be you know they have different values in colorado springs than they do in say trinidad um and not saying good or bad just just it's just a different way of looking at things because you have to look at that you don't want pueblo in the same district as like Douglas County, maybe because yeah. we think different. It's different. So it's anyway. better representation. Uh, with that being said, again, please email us at show at action22.org for any questions, comments, concerns. If you want to join, sign up, interested in that, hit me up there. If there's something specifically you want us to talk about, um, look for our emails and a little more information on the Energy Summit that will be happening on March 12th. Uh, you'll be able to catch that. Uh, we're going to stream that live on all of our social media um, and you can check out that. Um, but let us know what you think about any of these things and we'll be happy to talk about them. Join us next week for uh, Making Action Happen. We're going to have, uh, um, we're going to be talking a little bit about education next week. So we'll, we'll right. talk about that. So right. we'll see you then. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. 
Be sure to join your host, Sarah Blackhurst, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.